of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. It is good to be here and uh, so glad that you've chosen to spend this time with me. Um, Just a little bit, uh, just want to let you know that uh, I have been recovering from sickness. I have had uh, allergies which have attacked my body in the last week and so if my voice sounds a little different today, uh, that is probably why. So, Um, But we're continuing this five-part series on the five uh, neglected essentials of corporate worship, at least five that I have chosen and I think are vital. We've looked at the Lord's table, we have looked at the kiss of peace, and today we are going to be looking at lingo and talking about vernacular jargon's contribution to the ethos of worship And uh, this is something that I think is neglected quite often in the church, and it's usually done in the name of a semantics argument. In other words, um, lingo does not matter, or this term, or that term, this word, that word does not matter because it's just a semantics game. And I've said quite often in other episodes that it does matter. Every word that is used in corporate worship matters. In the Western church, in Western society, and particularly in America, um, the ethos of the church seemingly involves a catering to the culture for a plurality of underlying reasons. The strong belief in the use of vernacular language really stems from the Reformation era. Uh, But I will argue that it has drastically changed in its purpose. Uh, What I mean by that is where reformers desired for communities of God's people to possess the ability to worship in their own language, in their heart language, uh, that was one of the arguments Martin Luther made. People should be able to worship in the vernacular language, which for him was German. Um, There desire was that people would worship in their own language and thus experience a greater effect in life change. Um, Now, I I don't mean that um, your life cannot be changed uh, through another language. For example, if you speak another language, if you speak Spanish or French, or or me me personally, um, I have performed so much liturgical Latin music that uh, there's a level of understanding in liturgical Latin that um, so at times I have had genuine worship experiences singing music in Latin, but that is not the norm. And so um, reformers desired for people to be able to worship in their heart language and, their, and see a greater effect in life change. But I think the tendency in modern churches, at least with the use of vernacular language, it's founded upon the desires of people. In other words, lost or saved, the reason we use not just vernacular language, but colloquial lingo is to cater to the desires of people. So the purpose is not the worship of God normally, but the desires of people so that we appear cool or we appear... Uh, to 
be relative to modern society. And those are drastically different reasons. And so uh, uh, lingo is important, vernacular language. I am not saying don't use vernacular language, and I'm not saying don't use colloquial lingo. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. But we need to be careful uh, still in, in the language that we use. And so um, a few weeks ago, I had an episode on language in worship music, and we talked about uh, modern versus uh, traditional and, and, and various aspects of language. Well, today I'm specifically discussing lingo and how it has been neglected in the church and why that's a crucial issue. And so I'm going to discuss vernacular jargon and its contribution to the ethos of worship in our modern society. Worship leaders often see themselves as indirect theologians and theological teachers when the view really should foster teaching in a more direct manner. In other words, worship leaders should be intentional and purposeful with the lingo that they choose to use. Uh, Lingo teaches ideas, concepts, and even theologies, whether we realize it or not. And uh, I've heard many people say things like, well, they know what I mean, but my response is usually, do they? (laughs) You you can assume someone knows what you mean, but uh, they might not. And so don't assume it so easily. When worship leaders use terms such as stage or set list, uh, those are two common terms that I hear quite often among worship leaders, the stage or the set list. Uh, Many people's minds automatically create an association with worship, with those words. But those words, the problem is, they're also associated with a concert setting. And so jargons such as stage and set lists is naturally associated with worship, but also with a concert. And so you want to be careful. I'm not saying they're inherently wrong. But we need to be intentional, pointed, and clear with the, the lingo that we use. And so I prefer not to use the term set list. Uh, and I also don't use the term stage. I use the term platform instead because it implies something very different. Every single word that's used in the context of corporate worship quite literally has an either intended or an unintended implication. And so... I want to suggest here that lingo has become one of the most neglected aspects of corporate worship. Even Reformation-era theologians, in their desire to cultivate communities of worship through understandable language, had at the center a desire to worship God rather than to cater to societal norms. And so lingo is more than meets the ear. There's a deeper issue here. In fact, what is heard on the surface level... or what we hear typically is surface level and what we think people might understand um, unintentionally is surface level, but we need to think beyond the surface. What is experienced and internalized both mentally and emotionally, excuse me, is at the root of the issue. And so lingo should not be neglected. We should shift back to language that's difficult. uh, We should not shift back to language that's difficult to understand. So I'm not saying go back to Latin language. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not even saying go back to old King James English. Um, 
certainly use vernacular language, certainly use colloquialisms, but be intentional about these words that we choose to use. And that goes for worship leaders, for pastors, for everybody. And those who lead worship in the church need to take seriously their call uh, to cultivate worshipers of God, not merely congregants who understand theological concepts, albeit maybe in an inaccurate frame when you're using the term, uh, terms like stage and set list. Um, These words have meaning. Every word has meaning. That's why words exist. And so lingo should not be neglected, negated, or de-emphasized, but should be intentional. And so I have a few thoughts about lingo, vernacular jargon. Uh, First of all, lingo has unintentional implications that should be intentional. The underpinning of the issue here is not necessarily lingo itself, but the lack of intentionality behind it. And so I've personally had worship leaders tell me that they are not theological teachers. I I have heard that from the mouths of worship leaders, but realize it or not, worship leaders teach theology. Many people think of theology as deep and profound topics about God, but theology can be quite simple. And so when someone tells a child that Jesus loves him or her, when you tell a a child, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You're teaching theology. And similarly, when a worship leader sings hallelujah, all I have is Christ, they're teaching theology. And so theological teaching happens week in and week out, day in and day out, often without us realizing it. But the issue is that we should realize it. Uh, Throughout church history, theology has naturally been derived from congregational music, particularly in eras and societies where illiteracy was rampant. Music became not only a mode of worship, but also a tool for theological instruction. In our Western society, most of us are literate. We can read, we can write, um, especially in our own language. But music and lingo used in worship teaches believers theological concepts and ideas, right or wrong. Whatever the idea is, it still teaches. And so worship leaders should realize this aspect of ministry and strive for intentionality. The cop-out argument, I think, is the semantics argument. I usually push back on the suggestion that it's just semantics because... An intentional attitude geared towards proper teaching is required for worship leaders. Even the most minuscule difference in language can have a profound impact. Uh, For example, you have a choice to teach people that you either receive Christ or you accept Christ. And I'm not intending to argue for one or the other here, although I do have an opinion on that. But I want to point that, point out the difference between the two. There is a difference between receiving Christ and accepting Christ. And uh, dis- depending on your theological persuasion, you should probably choose one or the other. The semantics argument would suggest that the two words possess the same meaning. But deliberation would realize that there is not only a subtle but a vast difference between the two. 
And so many worship leaders don't understand the effect lingo has on those whom they minister to. And so the effect, however, is present whether intended or not. It's inevitable. And so why not be intentional about the words, the lingo that we use? A semantics argument often lends itself to apathetic lingo. In other words, people start getting lazy about uh, what they're saying when they lead worship. And so scripture commands us to to be prepared to give a defense of the faith continually in 1 Peter 3.25. And we're also told to do all to the glory of God. The Apostle Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 10. And so if the glory of God is the pointed goal of all we do, why would we not strive for excellence in all areas of life, especially in the lingo we use in corporate worship? To write off corporate, uh, to write off lingo is to effectively write off our call to excellence as believers. There's been a lackadaisical attitude uh, in the church, in among worship leaders especially, and I think it's yielded an overarching neglect of. Um, Lingo in the church, really, uh, in all facets, and that that includes not just corporate worship, but theological teaching as well. And uh, inevitably, people have started resorting more and more to the semantics argument. But lingo is important. It should be understandable. It should be accessible. It should be contextual. But it should be intentional. It should not be unintentional. And so, on that basis. The inescapable effect of lingo, uh, worship leaders have a choice to either steer that effect with intentionality or risk improper teaching with unintentionality. And so we need to be faithful to the call and we need to begin with the words and the lingo that we use. Uh, The second thought I have in all of this is that lingo matters because scripture matters. God was pointed and intentional in inspiring the text of Scripture. Original language texts are intentional, scribal editions are intentional, and modern vernacular translations are intentional. So why would we not be intentional with the lingo we use in corporate worship? We should not dare say that the text of the Bible is comprised of merely semantics-based concepts. Either Scripture is the inspired Word of God or it is not. If the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then every single word matters, and it is intentional and not just semantics. Worship leaders should teach the same truths presented in the Bible. Every word of Scripture should be scrutinized and treated with the greatest care. So why should we not manage lingo with the same care? Lingo's a tool. It's a tool to teach the authoritative message of the gospel found in Scripture. And so lingo matters because Scripture matters. And throughout the centuries, scribes, translators, ministers, and teachers have been diligent to reverently and carefully submit the gospel message of the Bible to the church. There have been many feeble attempts to stamp out Christianity. Um, In the early church, for example, um, persecution in the early church allowed Christianity to disperse to other parts of the world. Uh, Before Constantine, 
Diocletian tried to get rid of the Bible, uh, decreeing that if someone was found with a copy of the Word of God, they would be killed. And so when Constantine became a Christian, he offered a financial reward for copies of the Bible, and within one day, 50 copies of the Bible were, were brought to him, and the Word of God continued, even though his predecessor tried, miserably failed, but tried to get rid of it. And there was a French a Frenchman named Voltaire who died in 1778, and he also made an attempt to, to destroy the Bible. He, he made the prediction that within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity would, would have been swept from existence into oblivion. Um, but his efforts and his prophecy failed miserably, as did those of his unbelieving predecessors. And so in within a hundred years of his death, the printing press, which he used at his own home, was being used to print copies of the Bible. And the very house uh, that, that he lived in was being stacked with Bibles prepared by the Geneva Bible Society. And so he failed miserably. So despite people's best efforts, the Bible, Scripture continued. It is the inspired word of God. It is intentional. It is, pointed, it is pointed. It is accurate. There is no error. And so I, I, I tell you these stories to um, let you know how important Scripture is. And so if Scripture is that important... And we as worship leaders and as the people of God uh, are portraying the message of the gospel through scripture, why should we not be as precise with our lingo? The Bible is not just semantics. So why would lingo be just semantics? If the gospel message matters, then lingo matters. If scripture matters, then lingo matters. The third thought that I have towards all of this is to declare the full counsel of God, even vernacular lingo, has to be accurate. We have to remember the underlying reason for vernacular language, for lingo. It is so that the full counsel of God might be declared and understood in the church. Vernacular language and lingo should not exist for the purpose of colloquial understanding appearing to be in touch with modern society, or uh, just relating to current trends. That's not why we use lingo and jargon. Vernacular language, lingo, jargon, it exists for the purpose of worship. And the gospel message should be declared and understood by the people of God. So the message should be accurate. So while vernacular and colloquial lingo can be a vital tool to proclaim God's story, Accuracy should be prioritized. So vernacular language is not the issue. Lingo is not the issue. In fact, lingo, jargon, these are tools that help everyone in a congregation understand the gospel better. But the full counsel of God should be understand, uh, understood rather than the partial counsel of God. So while many Christians might be tempted to write off the idioms used in corporate worship, what is said in corporate worship is vital to an accurate message. So if one chooses to approach lingo as if it is not important, the risk of, 
the risk is taken of, of submitting a false gospel or a partial gospel, which really is no gospel at all. And so uh, we could teach that God helps those who help themselves. Uh, that sounds good. Sounds like, yeah, that might be in the Bible. Um, but if we don't realize it, that that's not in the Bible, um, we are teaching a false gospel. But even upon discovering its absence from the Bible, you could argue, well, you know what I mean, or it's not a big deal. Or someone could argue that that concept could be true depending on the perspective. You know, um, God helps those who help themselves. It sounds good. It could be true. But to teach the concept is truth is to not only neglect the full counsel of God, but to also teach a false gospel. Again, it's not just a semantics issue. You're teaching, you're held to a high standard when you're teaching the Word of God. And so we need to teach the full counsel of God. Um, here's another example. I have had people before say emphatically that it is a sin to drink alcohol. Now, if you have a personal conviction and choose not to drink alcohol, uh, then don't do it. That's between you and the Lord. If God has told you don't drink alcohol, don't do it, because for you it would be a sin. But you are teaching a false gospel if you are telling people that it is a sin to drink alcohol, because that is nowhere in the Bible. Now, obviously getting drunk is a sin, but to teach something that is not in the Bible as if it were is to teach a false gospel. And so, lingo matters. The words that we use in worship matter. And so often they are neglected in corporate worship. And so, it may seem like a drastic statement here to say that teaching something not in the Bible as truth is to teach a false gospel. That might seem like a drastic statement, but it is the necessary approach of someone who takes the gospel message seriously. Believers can and should use understandable, understandable lingo and jargon, but jargon's contribution to the ethos of corporate worship exists naturally. And uh, so our theological beliefs and ideas are often embedded through the lingo of corporate worship. That is to say that they are just naturally there. Usually there's not a deliberation. A starting point for Christians would be to move beyond embedded theology into deliber deliberative theology. In other words, why do I believe what I believe? Why do I use this word instead of that word? When I pray in public, why do I say this? Why do I end my prayer with, in Jesus' name? Whatever the case is, deliberate those issues. So the proper mindset should, should also be that with worship leaders' purposeful efforts to proclaim the full counsel of God in corporate worship, which could likely require change in some of the lingo used, we need to be intentional about our efforts. Lingo is often neglected in corporate worship, and but to declare the full counsel of God, even vernacular communication, even lingo, even jargon 
has to be accurate. Another thought I have on this matter is that lingo matters because worship is about God, not humanity. So the purpose of Christ's incarnation is frequently understood in the context of of a vertical relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. The proper relational understanding, however, should be first and foremost as a triune love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, and secondarily as a love relationship between Christ and the church. Okay, We often think of the primary relationship as Christ and the church, but the primary relationship is the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. So out of love for the Son, the Father has given a people, the church. Out of love for the Father, the Son is incarnate word and has given his life for the people whom um, have been given, and yet he loves primarily the Father, and he gives his life out of love for the Father, or has given his life out of love for the Father. And out of love for both the Father and the Son, the Spirit calls, convicts, and guides the people of God. So the vertical relationship between God and his people then is subsequent to and derived from the horizontal and triune love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so in this way, lingo matters because worship is about God, not about humanity. So often we think that we are the focus of the gospel, and we are not. God is the gospel and the focus and the point of the gospel. So why would we try to present a message to people, a story, the gospel message, with incorrect lingo when it's not even about us? It is about God. Uh, I would dare say that most of us would probably, if, if we're given the choice, you must do something for God or you must do something for a human being, your boss, your parents, whoever it may be, your spouse. Most of us would say, oh yeah, I need to do it for God if that's the choice between God or this other person. Um, the thing is, we are told to do everything to the glory of God. Work, play, food, eat, drink, whatever it is. We are told to do all to the glory of God. And so if we're told to do all to the glory of God... Lingo matters because it is serving a purpose for glorifying God. And so the lingo employed in corporate worship should serve the purpose of worship, glorifying God. If it doesn't, in other words, if it exists to make people feel better, the point is missed. We're not preaching a message so that people feel better about themselves or simply so they understand or so we look cool. That's not what we're doing We are preaching a message to glorify God. And so lingo should not be random, unintentional, or undirect, no matter how sincere we might consider a lack of preparation to be. A lot of people would not usually approach a judge or someone of noble noble position and prestige without a plan, without knowing what to say. And so language would not be flippant, but it would be clear and precise, at least as precise as possible. So why would we approach the creator God any differently, except that we approach him in an an even more reverent manner than we do a judge or someone of noble prestige? And 
while we should strive for understandability, we should also strive for accuracy. So when God's people realize that worship is not about them, but is about triune God, the perspective drastically changes. Human desires, understandings, and feelings become secondary or even negated when God's pleasure becomes the goal of corporate worship. And so if worship leaders approach the lingo that they use in this manner, while understandability is still vital, precision is also important. And thus every word is not seen as semantical, but is seen as a crucial tool for proclaiming God's story. So lingo should should be used, but never negated. So what's the issue here, the overarching issue that I'm talking about? It's apathy. You see, worship-related lingo did not become neglected overnight, Where we are as the church has resulted from years of apathy, which I think is the issue at large, Uh, where pre-Reformation era clergymen regularly exercised legalistic language in such a way that the lay person rarely understood it and thus was not able to participate in corporate worship, modern churches have become lazy in their approach to lingo. In other words, it's common for ministers and lay persons alike to write off and criticize an intentional effort to theological uh, precision and lingo. lingo. And so I reemphasize the fact that understandable lingo is vital to the corporate worship experience. Uh, Worship is participatory, and so... Um, You need understandable language there and even relatable language. That's why we worship in the vernacular rather than um, another language such as Latin. And I keep bringing up Latin because prior to the Reformation, that was the universal language of the church, uh, liturgical Latin. Um, But I don't believe that the Reformers intended a trajectory of vernacular language that was apathetic. But far from it, and and we can conclude that the church really has veered off that course uh, since then. Most faithful Christians, if you've been in church any length of time, have experienced uh, apathetic lingo, and and this is this comes across in various ways. Some of you are probably thinking about um, different situations where you've experienced that, maybe in a prayer. Uh, corporate prayer. I mean, how how often do we hear people pray irrelevant material? Uh, Father, thank you for dying for our sins. Well, the Father didn't die for your sins. So, I mean, I mean, there there's all kinds of things. These this these issues come up in many ways and manifest themselves in many ways. Irreverent prayers that address address triune God as Daddy. Um, or the big guy in the sky. I mean, these, these, this lingo may seem personal and sincere, uh, but it's far from it. Even if they are sincere, they're unintentionally perhaps discourteous at, ba- at best. God is unquestionably a personal God to his people as both individuals and as a covenanted body, but he is also indisputably sovereign, holy, and larger than a friend we can carry in our pockets like a small pet. And so irreverent and thoughtless lingo should not be accepted by Christians, especially those in worship leadership. 
I, I bring up the prayer thing, the Father, thank you for dying for our sins, because I have heard that prayed even recently. Someone in a corporate prayer said, Father, thank you for dying for our sins. Now, on the surface, it might make sense. People maybe don't think about it, and it just goes through one ear and out the other. And, oh, yeah, thank you, Father, for dying for our sins. To many believers, it seems like a good thing to give thanks to the Father for dying for the sins of the church, except for one neglected but vitally important fact, the Father did not die for anyone's sins. That was the role of the Son. And so a common response in this situation might be, uh, if someone were to criticize that lingo, uh, a response might be, well, they're both God, the Father and the Son, or Again, it might be, well, you know what I meant, or you know what they meant. But again, do I, or do they, are you sure they know what you mean? You are teaching a theology by praying that. Everyone who hears that is either directly or indirectly receiving some form of theological teaching. And so a greater question will be this. Does the one praying this phrase understand what they are saying or even understand Trinitarian theology at all. This is thoughtless lingo. And so years upon years of apathy in the church, in corporate worship, have led us to where we are. A place of theological neglect in the lingo that we use. And so we're here now. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to fix it. <laughs> lingo is, is vital. And we need to start changing the lingo that we use by not being apathetic, but being intentional. The solution is intentionality. So I'm not just offering criticisms here, but I'm offering solutions. The solution for neglected lingo is intentionality. There's nothing inherently wrong with using the term stage instead of platform or to speak of the music during corporate worship as a set list. It's not sinful. I'm not going to say that. But I would suggest, however, that the, the terms are reckless and exude in unintended associations among believers then further contribute to the false equation of music and worship. Okay? Um, when you use the term set list... Or, here's another common one. Uh, recently, I heard someone say, um, the worship was so good today and the sermon was great too. That, that's a wrong way to look at, at it. Um, the sermon is worship too. Everything that happens in a worship service, communion, the sermon, the prayers, it is all worship. So we need to stop saying, the worship was good. Or... Um, or even in our planning set lists, or in our planning orders, uh, stop using the term set list as the music portion of uh, the order. Uh, that implies a concert setting, uh, something that I've seen on Planning Center Online, which by the way, if you're not familiar with that, Planning Center Online is a uh, program that many worship leaders use to plan their worship services during the week. Their worship teams are able to see and log in to Planning Center Online and see uh, what the order is and kind of um, know what's coming up the next Sunday, that sort of thing. Um, but even Planning Center Online um, uses the term, the word worship for music. 
and and we need to stop doing these things. They 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 have unintended unintended uh, implications, and we need to be intentional. And so we need to strive to cut ties that teach the church that music is equal to worship. And so um, we just need to be intentional about these things. Intentionality is the key and the solution to apathy. So uh, these are some examples of many, but the point that I suggest is that intentionality is fundamental. Each and every word used uh, in the lingo of corporate worship possesses meaning and it furnishes either an intended or an unintended implication. So intentionality looks disparate between various worshiping contexts, but it's vital to each. In your context, the lingo that you can use might be different than the lingo that I can use, but... Um, we need to be intentional no matter the context. A progressive free church holds the same responsibility of intentionality as a strict liturgical church. Leaders of worship should examine every word spoken. And if that means overplanning, then overplan. If that means scripting, then script. <laughs> there are people that will say, well, that's insincere. If you script a prayer, if you script the service, no, it's not. How is that any more insincere than someone who, quote, extemporaneously, end quote, prays the same prayer every week and says, Father, thank you for dying for our sins. How is a scripted prayer any less, um, any less irreverent uh, than, than that? It's not. And so if you need to script, then script. If you need to overplan, then overplan. Whatever it takes... We, as God's people, need to be faithful to his call, his glory, and the gospel message. God's story is at stake here. God's worship is at stake. And so we need to declare it clearly and accurately in understandable lingo, but intentional lingo. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Did it, did it, did it, did it.